This podcast is brought to you by Maddox Lawyers, who are the lawyers to call when you need practical solutions to complex problems. Welcome to PX27 Today. As usual, I'm joined by Peter Jewell. Now, please excuse my incredibly hoarse nasal voice throughout this recording. The winter lurgy has hit me a few weeks back and I still haven't fully recovered. So if you hear me coughing, I apologise. Today, I'm honoured to be joined by Danny Addison, who's the CEO of the Urban Development Institute of Australia, also known as UDIA. We're the nation's key representative body for the urban development industry. Danny is passionate about enabling affordability and accessibility for all home buyers, reducing unnecessary regulatory burden on the housing sector and achieving an efficient planning system that delivers positive outcomes for Victoria's future. Danny is a dynamic and nationally recognised person, regularly sharing her property knowledge and industry acumen through media, events and keynote presentations across Victoria. Welcome to the show, Danny. I've been a big supporter of yours and I'm so impressed with your achievements so far. Would you mind giving the listeners a brief overview of your background? Hi Jess, it's really great to be here with you and, um, and Peter this afternoon. We're sitting in the UDIA's offices overlooking um, beautiful sunny St Kilda Road uh, and it's, it's, it's really great to be here. Happy to give you some insight into my background. Um, I've had quite a, quite a varied personal and, and professional background but always had the theme of, of property and, um, and policy running through my, my jobs and my interests, mm-hmm. um, everything from spending oh, three, or three to four, no, four to five years with Maddox lawyers doing all of the great work from being the receptionist, the admin support, the, um, the law clerk and this, the, the general give it to Danny kind of person. Um, while I did a while I did a Bachelor of Arts degree with a focus on uh, history and politics, to then marrying up that um, property experience that I gained at Maddox uh, on the on the front line really with uh, a good policy background uh, through work with the Victorian Public Service. Um, I spent a couple of about six months working in international relations in the Department of Premier and Cabinet, which was a fascinating experience around about the time that the uh, that the Indian students. Um, issues were happening in sort of the 2009 era. So, again, very varied. Uh, landed at Property Council as their head of policy and public affairs um, for a few years there, and and that really, I guess, opened my mind up to this concept of policy and um, and politics being an avenue for reform uh, and identifying and understanding how uh, problems can be addressed uh, and influence can be used to get better outcomes for, in, in particular, an industry, you know, that being the property industry. Uh, Matthew Guy, the former planning minister, then asked me to come and do some work for him, reforming development contribution plans and GAIC and Plan Melbourne and other fantastic things like that. Uh, and and then uh, following that, I commenced as, um, as CEO of UDIA here in Victoria uh, in 2014. Danny, can you explain to our listeners what the UDIA role is? What's its purpose? Yeah, sure. So the Urban Development Institute is an industry association. We've been around in Victoria for about 40 years and we're a national organisation. Our role is to represent um, the issues that our members um, are impacted by, both on a business and on an industry level. Um, and our members comprise of uh, those who um, those organisations who have something to do with and are involved in housing um, and property development from uh, in the urban urban sphere. So, uh, developers, planners, consultants, financiers, engineers, lawyers, anyone really that uh, is involved or has anything to do with those involved in 
developing housing uh, and other parts of our urban fabric or community infrastructure and things like that. Um, the, there is a role that we play that we're sort of moving into as industry associations grow and change and that's really around helping our members navigate business changes and, and, and the environments in which they're in and we do that through um, focusing on research and building their own networks and their business connections in a lot, in a lot more meaningful way. So this is obviously a massive role. You've got a little boy um, and another baby on the way. How do you fit everything in? What are your thoughts on work-life balance? Uh, it's incredibly important, and uh, I guess the, you know, the role I I have in my professional life is very unique. Um, uh, I guess I I have a I report to a board and a president, but I'm not a clock watcher. The culture within our team that we've worked very hard to establish and maintain is is that we're output driven, we're not time at desk driven, uh, and that means that I've got a great deal of flexibility over what my days look like and and how I manage my time. Danny, how do you see the role of planners changing in the urban development industry? Uh, I think more and more planners are um, being, uh, I guess, pushed to think outside their traditional uh, training and academic understanding of what planning is. I think in the, in the, in the world we're in and the way that information is changing, the, um, the, the, the view of the, the customer or the end user of anything right now, be it a service or a product, is becoming much more prevalent. Um, and the commercial drivers for understanding how users, be it individuals or companies or you know, service users engage with whatever it is that we're providing is really becoming paramount. So whether that means the cyclist at the end of the day who uses the bike path where, um, or, um, or the, the student who attends the school and where that, where that is and where that's used, there's, um, there's much more emphasis placed on how will that end user interact with whatever it is we're planning as opposed to what might be the most um, academic and formulaic approach that might look great that might not necessarily be as usable at the end of the day as we want. So there's a real emphasis on planners to get it right for the end result. So they're talking about practical outcomes? Absolutely. Not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good? Is exactly. Sort of thing? Yes, yes. And also um, efficiency and and um, and time I think is much more important these days. There's, uh, there's such a, a, a legacy of manual... Um, interaction with our planning system, both from government and from the profession, and that just simply has to change. Uh, and it, it's, it's changing, but it will change slowly because um, you know the government doesn't do anything fast in this mm. in this space. But at, you know, I, I don't believe that in another few years we're going to have too much paper to work with, or uh, or our system is is going to it's going to interact very differently with its customer base because. People expect that of, of everything, be it from your banking system or your um, or your online shopping planning. Will, will pl the planning system will be another interactive tool that will have higher expectations of it by its customers. Based on the views of the development industry, would you say the top three um, key issues relating to planning, based on what you just said, could be red tape? time delays and infrastructure, would that sort of be the three? Uh, three yes, but <laughs> I think, well, I think uh, when you when you talk about red tape and time delays, we're really talking about risk mm. in that sense. Yes. Um, and from the development industry's perspective, risk and time is, is, is cost yeah. uh, and also um, barrier to whether or not investment decisions get made or not. So um, 
you know, red tape or, or time is kind of an annoyance when you're when you're dealing with it. But unfortunately, um, in Australia, it it, it is uh, more and more becoming a barrier to whether or not people are going to do business here, mm. um, both domestically and internationally. So that's something we've got to be very conscious of. Uh, and you know, it's just like our you know our medical system. Your medical records don't follow you. Everything is manual. Those. Systems and processes that remain manual will become very, very difficult to deal with and outdated. So I think the planning system has to keep up with that. And what do you see as one of the greatest challenges for the planning industry moving into the future? Um, upskilling and capabilities. I yep. think that um, that there are huge opportunities for the planning industry to be more than just the, the planners that they see themselves as today. There's a um, there's a move away from, I guess, a sort of a silo service provision model that we currently have now where your planners do a bit, the engineers do a bit and da-da-da-da. And various businesses um, are actually adapting that, adapting to that now where, mm. um, where people are looking at their development opportunity or their project from a very much a project perspective and they want a full service from, um, from their advisory team. And so I think that planning can really embrace that uh, and planning can, um, instead of, you know, potentially being a barrier at various points in the development process, be much more of an enabler. Yeah. I think in that regard as well, your point about upskilling would be particularly important mm. in local government and mm. state government. Yep. Just so that people don't become complacent with the decisions they're making day to day. Because that seems to be, I mean, from my perspective, one of the key issues is that you talk to people who are just so jaded and so unhappy with what they're doing that mm. they can't think outside the box. So I think upskilling is a really good way of at least shaking people out of that. Well, that and it's going to require some leadership, um, particularly in the local government space, to actually ask our planners to think differently. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're not. They're not empowered to think differently. They're not empowered to ask the question of why are we doing this just because we've done it all the time? Mm. Does it necessarily mean it's it's different, which is why I really push government when they're looking at um, programs like the Smart Planning Program or, or other, you know, there's a there's a fast track PSP kind of uh, piece that's going on within the Victorian Planning Authority here in Victoria. I always push them and say, well, why are we just putting more bodies into the same jobs that we've always had? Mm. What, what's driving council, state government, all the rest to figure out where there are efficiencies that can be created or different ways of doing things when in the absence of really major commercial drivers, it's actually got to take some leadership to, to say, everyone get their heads up above water, think about for a minute how we're doing this differently because we can't keep doing it the same way. Um, the volume of what needs to be done is too great. Mm. Our skills are not enough um, and the planning profession simply isn't growing probably mm. at the rate that we would we would need it to if we were to keep doing things manually the same way forever. Yeah. When you say manually, do you mean paper? I mean, we're talking digital or we're talking electronic? Yeah, paper, um, uh, sort of, I guess, the, the, the human contact with the system is is quite heavy. Uh, so, you know, the, the approvals, the checking, the everything like that, there's probably a, a quite a great amount of automation that could come in mm. to the planning system down the track. One of our questions that I've, I've asked in the past is how soon until robots are making planning decisions or AI? Mm. When do you see that far away? Uh, oh, look, I couldn't tell you how far away, but you would assume with the trends that are happening in other industries that absolutely there is a formulaic approach to what we do in a great amount of the planning 
um, decisions or planning processes that are employed. Um, and what that does isn't necessarily replaces human interaction with the system, but it enables the, the humans of the systems to build their capabilities for more complex problem-solving activities, which is really where we want to be using our minds mm. um, and really where our, our human brains are best utilised as opposed to this roach uh, wrote churn and it goes to the question of culture that you spoke of before Jess mm. with um, you know particularly in local government that there seemed to be anecdotally quite a, a quite a bit of um, I guess uh, low morale and mm. and um, low energy there's a, there's within the planning profession. There's a, definitely a burnout factor yeah. because if you're processing the same applications over and over mm. um, you have very little control over what you're doing. Yeah. That's I think right. there, there was an article about this um, a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember who it was by, but I think they were saying five years is sort of the, the burnout time for most planners, which is mm. pretty scary when well, I mean, five it's years not a, nothing. It's not, a, it's not an attractive career prospect for a lot of people, you know, really. Danny, you talk about red tape and things like mm. that. What I've found is that a lot of applicants don't help themselves. Absolutely. And, and so that the, the council planners are, or state government are chasing up things yeah. that they really shouldn't. Have to do. There's a, there's <laughs> yeah. a, lot of, a lot of it's an attitude of just lob it in yeah. and then bitch about. Well, there's different there's different ways around that, I think. Um, and, you know, our, our planning system and the way we as community individuals or groups interact with development proposals and the rest um, is is uh, quite often emotional um, uh, and and very rightly invested in how it impacts us. There'll always need to be that that part of the planning system. That's really important. It's an important part of our democracy. Um, but again, it's about freeing up the profession and even the um, the I guess the the quality applicants or projects for that more complex problem solving arena, which is where we can make the real decisions that need the attention and the energy and the mm. information and all that sort of stuff. And, and, we'll, ex and we'll excite the planners as and well. We'll, exactly. Mm. That's right. So I, I, I agree. It's from, you know, and, and I hate the idea that there's sides in a system, but there are sides in our planning system. And it's, 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 it's at all sides and at all points that need to think a little bit differently about, you know, what we want to do. But the reality is is that also the system enables that at the moment. Mm. So it's, you know, you kind of can't necessarily blame uh, blame the applicant when the applicant can get away with it. Mm. So just on the theme of technology that we were talking about, how do you see technology influencing city design? Um, it's already happening. Mm. Um, I was um, amazed to read in uh, a recent edition of the Harvard Business Review, of all places, of um, of Deakin University's experience with Internet of Things uh, at its Burwood campus in Melbourne, um, and it was something that I hadn't actually been aware of until I until I read HVR. So, um, you know, they've got a system there that they're trialing in a in a confined um, sort of space, being their Burwood campus. That actually interacts with individuals as they move through their day and through their location. And you know, your your phone might pop up and say, "Oh, you're near your coffee shop. Do you want your normal latte?" And save you oh, six wow. minutes as opposed to going in and ordering and waiting. And da da da. You press yes and you pay and you move on. Mm. Um, there and you know, all my class, your classes move from room A to room B instead of showing up at room A, wasting another seven minutes finding room you know, A, finding room B. Then um, then you're informed along the way. So. I think as 
um, as our communities and um, businesses in particular get more comfortable with um, with the capacity that technology could give us mm. to improve the way we move or to improve the way we um, we, we get things done, uh, it will it will come. But I, I think we have a long way to go as a um, community interacting with digital technology in a sense that, you know, there is that sort of big brother feel. I'm not sure how I feel about the Burwood campus experience. Mm. Is it that they're watching me or is it is this helpful? It's Well, it could be either. Mm. Um, and some people will find it creepy and some people will find it really enabling because I just save 10 minutes in my day, you know. So it just depends on um, the generation of early adopters and how fast they move, well, I think, of, as well. Yeah. A lot of marginalised groups might find it very, very helpful. Mm, yes, that's right. So it'll be accepted in different ways in, in different parts of, of our society. But the big question will be when, you know... Um, the city of Melbourne wants to put something in across the CBD or whatever, that how accepting are we of that? But it is happening around the world. It's happening in cities around the world uh, and we've got a lot to learn from those cities. Mm. What about the ability to now visualise development before it happens, so montages and those sorts of things? It's fantastic. Mm. Uh, I think it, it does a lot for the democratic and community engagement process mm. of uh, development proposals. It allows people to visualise and, and even to an extent physically experience the mm. possibility of what could be there as opposed to just the on paper concept of a height limit or a you know a fairly rudimentary uh, expression of um, of what you can't possibly understand until you're sitting or standing or living in something mm. um, so I think it will only serve to assist the development sector and our city and the amenities that we can um, make sure are delivered as part of new developments Many, many of you, many of the members of the UDIA are broadacre developers. How are land developers providing better product and choices compared to say ten to twenty years ago? Yeah, well, we're about uh, we're about fifty fifty as a membership base, um, but but yes, the the land um, the land market is a really interesting example because up until about uh, two thousand and eleven. Um, there were only uh, quite a small number of overall estates being developed. Um, Matthew Guy's push on um, PSP and land supply saw those um, the number of active estates double in our growth areas, and now I think we're at around two hundred or something like that. So um, the the fast rate of growth in competition um, has really, I guess, pushed the development industry to get a lot better and to find competitive advantages and to you know really keep that pressure down on price. Um, we did see that sort of you know, sustainability surge through the early 2000s and the mid and the mid um, sort of the you know 2010 to 2015 sort of era, we're seeing that um, translate now into more of an emphasis on innovation and technology and how that um, can assist people either getting around uh, or what they what they want to use within their home. Um, the uh, not a greenfield site, but the Glenville site at Alfington in Melbourne um, is a you know the f Australia's first Tesla town. There's uh, there's examples of um, other technological companies coming in uh, to precincts and making themselves a big branding part of that, but also a big experience about how people will live in that area. Um, the UDI's Enviro Development Program recognises those um, innovations and we've got a lot more of a focus these days on how technology will assist sustainability and livability outcomes. Um, and uh, it's a really exciting space, really exciting. 
This podcast is proudly sponsored by Song Bowden Planning. Song Bowden specialise in management of planning permits, planning scheme amendments and representation at VCAT and planning panels. Also thanks to SALT3 and the Victorian Planning Reports for their ongoing support. we have the resources to keep up that level of growth, do you think, in Victoria? Or are we, are we currently getting a lot of resources interstate or are we using mostly local um, resources? Do you mean in terms of delivering the new housing? Delivering, that's been, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, our growth areas in Melbourne in particular um, are definitely at capacity in terms of lot production. We've, yeah. We're producing about 23,000 uh, new lots this year and that is the most we've ever produced. Um, there is definitely some pressure points in terms of civil construction availability. Um, the approvals pipeline going through councils is very squeezed mm. uh, and state government is having difficulty keeping up um, with the approvals rate. So there's areas of, I guess, post-planning production that need addressing, which we're working with government on. Land Titles uh, Office in Victoria has done a great job in streamlining its processes and we're looking at things like private certification for engineering mm. approvals. Um, the, uh, I guess the issue like when a city is developing in, in Melbourne, we've got Melbourne Metro, the Western Distributor, a whole lot of projects going on at once. Sydney's under complete construction and, you know, housing boom as well. So, yes, there are a finite number of skills and resources mm. um, and that might... Uh, translate into um, increased costs which we wouldn't want to see but that's um, you know that's reality so I guess the the key for government and for industry is to do what it can and speed up the the parts of the process it can and then to keep costs down as as much as possible by increasing competition in the marketplace. Annie, Australia and in particular Victoria have experienced very high um, population growth rates of the third world nature uh, there is some unease in the community about this and some people are suggesting it's a Ponzi scheme in that um, uh, population growth doesn't actually mean fundamental, long, sustainable economic growth. Um, your answer to the Ponzi scheme suggestion? Um, my answer to the Ponzi scheme suggestion is... Uh is I, I just I, th I think that's a quite an unfortunate attitude. I think that that probably. Um, I suppose it comes about because a lot of people see their city very busy, very congested. They're not seeing any direct benefit to themselves. Mm -hmm. They think that the infrastructure can't cope. That the the, the Westgate is, you know, a car mm, park. Yeah. That this more and more growth doesn't necessarily mean better city outcomes. Yeah, I mean, and look, the reality is is that infrastructure and infrastructure investment hasn't come first. Um, if it had come first, we wouldn't be in a car park on the Westgate. Um, and often infrastructure investment has to follow a critical mass of population growth. That's why new schools come into growth areas when there's communities already there or why the Western distributor wasn't committed to 10 years ago when, you know, if it had been, it, we, wouldn't have, we wouldn't have been parking on the Westgate. So I think that um, I completely empathise and understand that there are growing pains associated with growth and there is, there is some serious issues around congestion, um, both uh, within, you know, traffic, trains, people getting to work. 
Um, but the reality is, is that we're still a very much a maturing global city um, and we need to give ourselves some time to get it right. Government does need to um, make more uh, strategic investments, not just in big projects, but in, you know, the, the growth areas, for example, or into the um, growing and, and expanding urban areas. But there's also um, quite an untapped amount of um, of capacity within our urban existing urban areas, which are well serviced by um, by transport and jobs and are very livable, to take more density than than they already are. So it's a it's a balancing. So, Danny, do we need a new way of assessing the health of cities? That seems to be a very topical um, thing at the moment, particularly in planning, um, using city index indexes of well being and the like. Yeah, I think so. I think particularly as um, as our demographics change and um, and you know, with with I guess with the growth of cities, and we've seen this globally that that often the um, the negative symptoms of growth, um, such as you know, increase in crime or increase in um, unhealthy living or sorry, decrease in healthy living, more like it, um, are the things that um, really get pulled out, and and they are the things that we should be proactively measuring and managing. Um, but it you know, it does go to the point of. Um, of those, uh, th- those things our communities also um, benefit from and expect to be be managed. I mean, mm. the, the livability index, for example, is um, is such a crown in you know on Melbourne's head. Mm. Um, but there is a likelihood that in the future it will be lost at some point, and I don't know that that would necessarily mean that Melbourne is less livable. Um, it's so we just have to be. Um, I guess careful with indexes that they are um, not as as rigid and stuck at in a point in time, um, but that they actually move with the expectations that community have of what what it is that we're trying to represent. Yeah. Well, I suppose Danny, with technology, that, that accessibility and be able to communicate, that that the city indexes might become a lot broader. Mm, yeah, and a lot more interactive. You know, I mean, I guess. Um, research is changing. It's not a point in time anymore. It's um, it's it's trends are interesting to people. Um, growth and change is interesting to people. So um, we're not we're not sort of taking pulse checks at a point in time, but we're actually measuring things as they happen in real life time. Um, and that will that will change what we measure and how we measure it. Danny, what are, what do you think of the great disruptors coming to how cities function? Um, I think that uh, individual interaction with cities as a concept. Um, will really disrupt um, the physical nature of of cities. You know, we kind of we're we're not just in a um, in a space anymore, but we're interacting with our spaces, and and we expect more to be provided around us. Um, you know, free Wi-Fi, for example. Why why on earth don't we have free Wi-Fi everywhere in Australia when in a lot of other cities they do? Um, it's 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 that emphasis on access to information, mobility. Um, and the movement of people and ideas and um, and commerce that will change the way that our cities function, and it will be expected to happen extraordinarily quickly. And, and Danny, what important truth do you, do very few people agree with you on? Well, besides the fact that a redhead will one day run the world, <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that um, uh, that and it's a it's a fantastic question, Peter. You, you've given me a, a lot to think about with this one. Um, but I uh, my 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 view on that is that um, change and attack of the norm is good. Um, it forces us to think differently and do better. 
Uh, and if everything remains the same, we won't ever improve. We won't ever be pushed to uh, change the way we understand problems or approach issues. Um, and while it can be difficult and uncomfortable, it's it's not a bad thing. Um, and I guess the more accepting we are of that, the more um, more progress we're going to make both within uh, an industry or our individual lives. Uh, and, and I think it's a good thing. I really do think it's a good thing. So um, it's not the, – the truth is that it's not just that change is inevitable but um, the, the pain that change may bring is a good thing. Good answer. Very good answer. The redhead bit or the yeah. – yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and just to finish on, this is um, something we ask everyone, um, really just to pick your brain, is – what are you currently reading, watching or listening to that you can recommend? Well, uh, the UDIA's National Congress is in Melbourne in March next year, um, which is uh, really, really exciting and also a little bit scary. Mm -hmm. um, but I have spent the last couple of months um, researching and understanding um, everything from the way blockchain technology could impact our industry to uh, who are the greatest thinkers on, on urban design and, and um, you know, smart cities and, and interacting with our physical spaces. Um, and there are just too far too many to mention at this point. But, um, you know, a couple of people that stand out to me are Bettina Warburg, who talks, um, talks in fantastic terms about blockchain technology and the impact it'll have uh, both on the finance sector but just on, you know, industries more broadly. Um, a guy named Ricky Burdett, who's a professor at the London School of Economics and his view on um, the global evolution of cities, in particular megacities. Uh, and uh, a few other people who um, I guess are just informing my thinking about the changing nature of uh, business and, our, um, and, and giving me some ideas about the role of industry associations and in particular the Victorian UDIA and how it can serve its members into the future and who its members might be and all that sort of stuff. So, well, thanks very much, Danny and uh, Jess and uh, listeners. We've got some news that uh, we uh, eventually we're finally going to have our launch party three years after we started, which will be in November, and we'll have five um, tickets for some of our listeners. But we'll have further details in next month. Mm -hmm.